Welcome to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill, and I'll be leading you on this adventure. We'll be getting into deep discussions about classic records, profiles on up-and-coming bands, and interviews with your favorite artists. You can check out new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. This week we have the man, the myth, the legend, music lifer Dan Loken. You know him from Nuclear Assault, Brutal Truth, SOD, Anthrax, the list goes on. Dan is also a fellow Gimme Radio DJ. Check out his show, Brain Death. When I was recently on tour, we had a stop in Rochester, and Dan and I met up at this beer garden. You can hear uh, the laughter of some of my bandmates in the background. The recording is real. You can hear people talking, children crying, trains off in the distance, but you get the idea. Also, I'd like to apologize because uh, my voice is obviously shot during this recording, so just have to bear with me. You've always been known for being very prolific, so how many active bands do you have right now? Well, some are like semi-active because I'm in Venomous Concept, for instance, but with all the people in the band, like, you know, Shane from Napalm and other people in other bands, we uh, just do shit like once in a while. So that's kind of like a band that would count as like half active. Um, Nuclear Assault is 99% finished, so that's like also barely active. Uh, we don't have our original drummer, Glenn, anymore. We use Nick Barker whenever we do oh, something. Wow. Okay. But uh, John, our frontman, is a high school teacher, so he doesn't get to do much. As far as here, where I live in Rochester, I was playing in two bands. I was playing in a black metal band called Nocturnal Hellstorm. But actually, a year ago, almost to the day now, late August, we had our last show because uh, our singer relocated to Texas, and he had a certain charisma and everything. We just we'd had other lineup issues before that, so he just said, "Ah, fuck it." So, excuse me, I am still playing in a band called Blurring. We actually played last night. That's like insane evil grindcore, and. Uh, that is mostly it. I've kind of scaled back a bit. I don't like to tour as much as I used to. That's the whole thing where people are like, I heard you retired. That was, in actuality, choo-choo. Retiring was my polite way to stop doing brutal truth without hurting people's feelings, which I probably just should have hurt people's feelings because I just keep getting asked, oh, I thought you retired, but here you are. So, uh, Well, that was, that was the comment I was going to make where it was like a couple of years ago, there's like, oh, yeah, Dan Loka retired. But you got all these projects going on, so, so it's an active really, retirement. It was, yeah, it was a pretty active retirement. It was really mostly a combination of not wanting to do Brutal Truth anymore and just getting sick of touring. Ever since I moved up here, I mean, you guys are in the city. You get direct flights to places in Europe or whatever like that. Um, I've had a lot of issues just being stuck and fucked around in airports, and it just gets really fucking annoying. And I got tired of being dicked around. It was just, like, super stressful. Because it's not just you're going on to fucking Disney World or something. If you don't get where you're going on time with all your shit, you may not be playing this festival in front of 15,000 people. And you do contingency shit. You book stuff. You tell the promoter, you're going to have to get me a hotel room the night before because I want to be able to get there on time and fucking be well-rested and shit. And they go, okay, that sounds cool. And then your flight still gets fucked up. You have to go home, try again the next day. And then... 
if you don't sleep on that flight because there's some crying kid, then you're going to be delirious and playing in front of 15. And it was just shit like that where the traveling was just getting super stressful. I mean, I just quit smoking pretty much, well, 99%. But <laughs> before that, you know, I'd be, like, stressed out and you can't have a cigarette in a fucking airport. I mean, there's, like, two airports in the States you can. So uh, I am going to Belgium on Tuesday because uh, the singer of At The Gates is getting married next weekend. Oh, yeah. Marrying a Belgian chick. But that's just going my wife on a little vacation, leave the base home, not worrying about merch. And uh, if the flight gets fucked up, we just get there next day. Are you familiar with Wow Air? <laughs> it sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, what? That's an airline, I see. Yeah, it's, an, it's sort of an airline, yeah. Okay, so uh, well, what's their deal? Well, we, uh, we flew with Wow Air to play Hellfest about a month ago, and it's like this kind of um, makeshift... Uh, Icelandic airline that just kind of sets up in like various locations it's and then it takes like forever to get on the plane and maybe your flight gets canceled and everything's like a la carte once you get on the plane I've heard of that because uh, they're super cheap that's the whole yeah, that's yeah. the appeal <laughs> instant coffee for like four dollars wow yeah no I flew uh what's we call it uh in 2009 Brutal Truth went from, uh, we finally managed to do the thing where you go from Japan to Australia. So, you know, you don't have to have all these fucking Pacific flights. You just kind of string them together. The thing is, Marty, the Australian promoter, booked us on a budget airline from Japan all the way to Australia where you got to pay for orange juice. That's rough, we were like, man. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Do you ever take that flight from um, out of Gatwick in... Uh in England to they fly to like Athens and it's basically like being on a big bus in the air where you just kind of first come first serve seating no I've flown from here Rochester New York to Toronto because we had a destination after that and for a flight that short they basically put you on something that looks like a Greyhound bus with wings the, f uh, the co-pilot doubles as the flight attendant he doesn't need a microphone he just fucking leans over and just goes, all right, guys, welcome to Flight 35. And there's like eight rows of seats. And when there's turbulence, dude, it will cross your fucking eyes. <laughs> so um, you have a show on Gimme now. Um, is, there, is there a theme to that show? Or like what's your basic uh, sort of criteria for the selections? Well, the show's called Brain Death because that's an old nuclear assault song. So I figured that would be original. I originally started it by trying to just play a mix of metal that either influenced me or I just dug anyway and I tried to have different genres everything from new wave of British heavy metal up to you know black metal and grindcore and stuff then I looked at everybody else's shows and noticed that some of the more older metal stuff was getting a fair amount of play anyway so excuse me the more old-school stuff like new wave of British heavy metal and power metal I still play but I kind of focused more on modern brutal stuff and death metal black metal and grindcore and uh, yeah, I, I don't know how often your show is. I only have to do it once every two weeks. That's mine too. It's like yeah, that. which is good because taking up two hours worth of shit. I, my fourth show is coming up on Friday, which I won't be, I won't be on Gimme Live for that one because I'll be in Belgium, passed out at one in the morning. If I am up, then I don't think I would have anything articulate to say. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, just trying to play stuff that was important to me that. Uh, like I said, either influenced me or I just enjoyed anyway. And it ended up being a little more on the intense side because, you know, 
anybody could play Motorhead or Iron Maiden or something like that. So, how did you meet those guys? I met them at the second edition of the Decibel Metal and Beer Fest in Philly. I was there with a brewery called Adroit Theory from Virginia that had made a beer with my image on it, a New England hazy IPA called Personal Coma, which is a play on words from my biography, Perpetual Conversion. And um, yeah, ironically, I've been to that fest twice. The first time I was pouring for McKellar. And the second year I was uh, with the Adroit Theory guys. I've never actually performed there. I've only been there on the beer side of things. I've actually asked Albert, hey, can you get Blurring on next year? You know, it's weird being on one of these shows and not playing. I feel useless. I know the feeling, man. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> what am I doing here? But anyway, yeah, so the Gimme Radio guys were there. Speaking of beer. <laughs> and I, Tyler, the main dude, and uh, first I just did a video interview with them. You know, and then after that, Excuse me. They uh, broached the subject of, do you want to uh, be one of our DJs? And I said, sure, that sounds cool. I mean, I've been on the playing side of stuff for obviously like you know more than thirty years now, but I've never been in that kind of aspect of it. So I thought it would be cool and interesting, you know. And I wasn't worried about a paycheck or anything like that. It's just uh, cool. And plus. I don't do any kind of social network. I'm, I don't do any Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of that shit. You know, if you want me, you just either fucking text or email. So that made it kind of cool to interact with people on Gimme Live. But yeah, I uh, I couldn't be bothered with people on Facebook. Like, ooh, what should I have for dinner tonight? You know, Italian food or fucking Chinese food? Fuck off. Yeah, it gets pretty tedious on social media, definitely. Yeah, I don't care about the trivial aspects of people's lives. Now, after 30 years of being in a band and playing and touring, like, do you ever find yourself getting jaded about music? Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, you get jaded about some of the aspects of touring, but I've always tried to... I'm always, like, searching for something. Like, I went from playing thrash metal, you know, and then... When I went to play in grindcore from, you know, with Brutal Truth, you know, some definitely turned a couple of people's heads. Like, wasn't that to do just playing? And now he's playing five million miles an hour. Of course, there was negative things on message boards where people like, you're a trend jumper and now you're playing black metal. I'm like, no, I'm just playing what I want because I don't give a shit. And uh, so if I find myself getting jaded by something I'm doing musically, I just don't do it anymore. Really. You know, I'm not playing music to make a million dollars to get laid. I'm doing it because I enjoy it. If I don't enjoy it, then it's time to move on. Last night, we I ran into Ralphie Boy at the show. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, from Disassociate. And uh, we were just talking amongst ourselves about how back in the 90s, like Disassociate, Brutal Truth, um, Black Army Jacket, were probably the only bands playing really fast in New York at the time. And um, so, I mean, what was the sort of, like... Uh, you know, impetus for starting to play that style of music back then, you know, coming out of being, you know, nuclear assault and anthrax? Well, um, I'd always been into the more radical stuff, even if I wasn't playing it. So I was into Napalm all the way back in like 87 when I first got turned on to them. And then that whole kind of like eerie catalog, you know, like when Morbid Angel went, put out Alters of Madness, because before that, you know, before they got Pete, they were kind of uh, 
more even kind of black metal-ish and just uh, mysterious and necro-sounding, which I also like. But um, for me personally, yeah, it was just uh, getting exposed to really intense stuff and then I would interact with these people. Like when Nuclear Assault would go tour in England, the guys from Napalm Death and Carcass would come backstage and hang out, annoy the other dudes. Um, and uh, yeah, so as far as that New York scene that you're alluding to there, um, it was just a bunch of like-minded people that were into the same shit and just had a good time doing it, really. You know, that was uh, Grind was starting to blossom or whatever you call it. Now, um, in the early 90s, you had a uh, hemlock. And uh, all right, now... In 2018, it's very easy to find out about all these like subterranean genres of music. But back then, unless you were really dialed into like the, the scene, you didn't know about bands like you know Mayhem and Burzum and all that sort of stuff. But you guys were probably one of the first U.S. black metal bands. Oh yeah, they we were hated. It was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everybody else in New York, you know, there was either. You know, if you remember, there was shitty new metal around then. Oh, yeah. Uh, or it was, you know, completely guttural, brutal death metal, which kind of bores me. That super compressed, you know, blast beats over arpeggios. Everything's perfect sounding. Pro Tools. I, mean, I don't know if they had Pro Tools back then. I don't remember. But what I mean is that it was just kind of lifeless to me. Um, with Hemlock, yeah, we were into, uh, you know, Scandinavian black metal and shit like that. And also just... I mean, there was bands, you know, like Absu and Demoncy and other old, old school U.S. black metal bands. But in New York City, no. No, we were a total sore thumb. So therefore, we ended up playing a lot with death metal and thrash metal bands because we didn't really, we weren't like super snooty. Like, we only want to play with black metal bands. That would be stupid. There weren't any other good black metal bands. There was a few bands. There was like a Basgarath from New Jersey and shit like that. But, uh, yeah, we were... Uh, just playing what we wanted to play, and like I said, at the time in New York City, not a lot of other people knew what was going on with that stuff, so uh, we kind of threw some people. Our last show in 2001, we played with Pro Fanatica and Black Witchery in New Jersey, and our singer, Desecrator, uh, had a whip and was whipping people in the crowd. It's a fucking sweet deal. <laughs> <laughs> Punctuation. <laughs> Now, you guys used, uh, you know, black metal names in the credits, so... Uh, I was Balth. Yeah. My name, Balth, was the words brutal and truth, but both of those words have the word rut in it. Fuck oh. off. So that was a B. <laughs> yeah, man. Nobody likes to be in a rut, no less two. So if you write down the words brutal, truth, remove the rut from both those words. Yes, I was high when I figured this out. <laughs> you are left with, in order, B-A-L-T-H. So I was like, that's a cool name. So that's what I took. What about the other members of the band? Like, uh, is it is it still, is it, you know, it's been a number of years, so is it a public record now we can discuss who's in the band? Well, uh, our vocalist, his real name is Lino. He's in Villains now. He was uh, Desecrator. Then I think D777 after that. I think the numerology thing might have been ironic, maybe just making fun of Striper, or I'm not sure. There might have been some deeper meaning. 
when we had a two guitar players, one of them was Laconist, because he was just a laconic stoner. And then our other guitar player was named Azalin, A-Z-A-L-I-N, but he was just Brandon, a Puerto Rican dude from Staten Island. And I don't know the derivation of his name. And our drummer, Tony, was His Eminence the Wicked. And, yeah, um, it's just fun to have infernal names and try to make them original, which is why I picked my name. And uh, it was part of the tradition. See, black metal is steeped in tradition. We didn't do all of them. We didn't wear corpse paint, you know, I mean, shit like that. We kind of did it a la carte, you know. Uh, Nocturnal, when we first started out here in Rochester, we wore tons of spikes, but... I don't know if you've been to the bug jar. You try to get five dudes on stage all wearing big gauntlets. It's just like, ow, ow, ow. <laughs> so uh, we bagged that. At our last show that we did precisely one year ago, we did all-out capes and, and corpse paint. And uh, that was pretty cool because the weather gave us a break. It wasn't as hot as this because, dude, if it was going to be that hot, I would have worn a cape and nothing else. <laughs> Now, back in the Hemlock days, were you guys in, in uh, contact with any Norwegian bands at the time? or? Well, yeah. We were friends with a bunch of those bands. And also, our earlier stuff was on Head Not Found, which is uh, Metallion's label from Oslo. Sarpsborg, actually, where he was originally from. And, uh, yeah, I actually I visited Norway in 97 for the first time because SOD had started doing shit again. And we played a festival in Germany. So... I rigged it so instead of just flying back and forth through Frankfurt, I said, make my return flight a week later. And I uh, made some decent cash at the SOD show and uh, flew up to Norway. And uh, what you call it? You could see in my biography, took acid with Fenris at his farmhouse. He fucking played trance techno the whole time. Yeah. Now, speaking of SOD, back in the 80s... Um there was a, a record store in Danbury, Connecticut called Trash American Style that I, I lived close to. And um, do, do you know those guys? you know Malcolm, any of those guys? You're familiar with the I store? I don't think so. I've been to Danbury, but... Uh... Yeah. Um, so I found the SOD cassette there and it had a sick, like, I like the uh, album cover. So I bought it, a cassette. And um, that band probably couldn't really exist today if it was a new band just because of the uh pc shit pc shit yeah yeah fuck that yeah totally dude um but people seem to have lost their sense of humor and irony and uh take things way too seriously yeah that's a big problem all this safe space shit yeah i mean i don't call people snowflakes believe me i'm, I'm what's we call it that's some conservative thing i'm not really a conservative politically or anything i mean uh Let's recall it with this fucking president. I mean, please. But um, your original point is that, yeah, um, with SOD, it was like, fuck them if they can't take a joke. Was, SOD was like two Italians and two Jews from New York. You can't get more fucking, you know, it was just trying to be as obnoxious as possible. And what people don't realize is that Billy might have been like the mascot and like Sergeant T come to life, but it was Scott and me that wrote the most fucked up lyrics. <laughs> Billy only wrote lyrics to No Turning Back and Pile for New. So that's what? An environmental song and a song about a fucking fraternity. We were the ones writing, you know, speak English or die and fuck the Middle East. But then again, you had a song about being hungover and not having milk to put on your cereal. <laughs> so you really have to bring that in. That had as much meaning as speak English or die because that was a true story. 
Yeah, it's all perspective and sort of context, I guess. You know what I mean? We were also trying to annoy the guys from Maximum Rock and Roll. Back then, you know, kind of like uptight, hardcore dudes complaining about New York from their Bay Area. And, oh, Agnostic Front or Nazis. It's like, no, they're not. Sure, they started off with some sketchy shit, but, you know, fucking... Some of it's just to, pro to provoke, you know? Ask Mayhem about that. Well, you that's know, kind fucking of fucking white power things, but those guys ain't... They just, uh, you know, you ask Attila, he'll just say, it's designed to provoke. Yeah. Which kind of goes back to the whole idea of, like, you know the punk aspect and like sort of trying to just push the envelope with people you know yeah a little shock value never hurt yeah you know and back in the 80s it was just kind of all about offending people anyway really I well, remember being a young punk myself and trying to just be offensive you know all the time well yeah well people would tell us yes but you're not supposed to be offensive to the rest of the scene you're supposed to be offensive to the rest of society that's they, that's what to be their comeback we were like we're just trying to be offensive and they were like yes but you offended those people like, well, I'm sorry, but not really. I mean, I don't regret it at all. Sure, it was some of that shit was in bad taste, but it was obviously, you know, what's that dot on your head? Do you use it to see? I mean, there was some fucking parody there, you know? Sure. It's If you took that whole thing super seriously, then you deserve to, and you can fuck off. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's definitely, like, there have been, like, lags between activity with S.O.D., but do you anticipate any other S.O.D. material or anything like that coming up in the future? Probably not anything recorded, but there has been slight chatter about possibly doing shows again, but I'm not going to go any further than that because it's only at the chatter stage. Okay. You know, it's been a long time. It's been since 2001. Oh, good. I'm going to get Phone's one more coming. beer while we're doing this. Perpetual Conversion. Okay, this came about because the author, Dave Hofer, was on tour with Brutal Truth in Europe doing merch for us. Uh, so this would have been 2007, 2008, something like that. And we had a day off to get from one end of Spain to the other. And, yeah, we were going from, like, the Basque area all the way down to Sevilla, but, you know, which is practically, you know, Next stop after that's Algeria and the Strait of Gibraltar. And long, boring drive, just fucking problem. I'm sure we were smoking a little weed, and I was amusing everybody by telling funny stories about shit that had happened in the past. And, you know, if somebody says something like, dude, you should write a book. And I would say, and I did say, I don't think I could write a book, man. I fucking party too much. I don't remember everything. You know, I, I don't know how I'd remember all that stuff. And Dave just pipes up and goes, I'll do it. 
So he just volunteered like that, right? Yeah. Dave had uh, written for a punk magazine in Chicago called Punk Planet and works at Reckless Records, you know, big death metal fan. And uh, he uh, had so a little backgrounds like that in journalism, not like being a whole book or anything, just like doing articles and shit like that in zines. So, uh, so for him to take this on, you know, he really had to like sign on and get ready to do it. But he did take it on, so this now involved him. It's getting kind of noisy here. I feel like I'm on United Airlines here, except for the train. Shut up, kid. Anyway, so what he would do is Dave would fly out from Chicago, where he's from, to Rochester once every few months, and we would sit out on the gazebo in front of our apartment complex, and he would just pick my brain. And then I would also dig up a whole bunch of laminates, cool. tour books, posters, anything that would jog my memory. I'd go, oh, yeah, I remember this tour with Exodus. And you could see every venue and the dates. And that in turn would go, oh, I remember this fucking show because it was my birthday. So Exodus brought a joint, brought a cupcake on stage, and the candle was a joint <laughs> that was burning. <laughs> and uh, just shit like that. So it's... I hope this isn't going to interfere with it. These mics usually are pretty good about They're not. They're not Omni. They're they're just Uni. Okay. Right. Fucking, I hate children's negativity. Going to have to drink. (laughs) That's why I have cats. When they cry, it's cute. Okay, anyway, the book. So, uh... That is how the book came about. And then it's a question of finding a publisher... Um, there was a few false starts with that until uh, Ian Christie from Bazillion Points took over. I won't talk about and diss the people that were going to do it before that, but it's like having a band and trying to get signed. Just labels, we're interested, we'll do it, and then they fucking fall apart on you. So, uh, yeah, so that's how that whole thing came together. And, yeah, just going through all this stuff, and then he took a million pictures, too, for the pictures in the book, and... He interviewed a whole bunch of other people. I mean, it's the only fucking book in the world that has, like, my mom and Fenris, if you think about it that way. And, uh, yeah, it came together. So it covers all those early years, too, and, like, you know. It covers everything from when I first started playing music, playing piano when I was five years old, to the very last thing where we stopped because we had to stop doing the book because I was still doing a lot of shit, and it's like, where do you draw the line? Right, exactly. So it started with when I started doing some shows with Lockup when Shane couldn't do it because Napalm Death's manager is an idiot and would double book him. Shane would say to Mark, don't do anything with Napalm from June 15th, June 27th. And we'd go, okay, Shane. And the next day, they would fucking have a mini-tour book. So what did I just fucking tell you? Danny... We're going to need you to do some lockup shows. So I haven't done that in a while, though. So now Kevin's singing. I don't want to stand next to him again. <laughs> Kevin Sharp's in that band? Yeah, Kevin Sharp. When, okay. uh, when Tompa stopped doing it, they right got on. Kevin. Okay. One of the questions I had that always pops up about the you know early days of Thrash is, um, you know, it's once again similar to the playing fast grind thing we talked about in the 90s, how there's a lot of Thrash bands that really popped up on the West Coast. And, you know, Nuclear Assault and Anthrax were, uh, you know, East Coast bands. 
So was there any kind of communication between you guys, like when you were forming or tape trading or that kind of thing? Or was it just dudes who all love New Ape of British Heavy Metal and just kind of started playing it faster? Well, um, no, we had a camaraderie with the West Coast bands. We had like a healthy competition, East Coast versus West Coast. It wasn't like hip hop where we were shooting each other or anything. Um, and uh, a lot of it was zines. I wasn't active as a tape trader because I'm just fucking lazy. And then you had to go to the post office and all that. But I remember Metal, Metal Mania zine from the Bay Area, Ron Quintana did, and just reading about these bands, you know, first hearing about Exodus and, you know, Bailoff, you know, the legend of Bailoff, you know, I mean, that was where all that shit started with people, you know, slicing themselves open and all that stuff. Started with uh, Paul Bailoff just being fucking crazy and being fucking too much speed, which, you know, kind of finished him off. But, um... We, uh, well, Metallica first came over, and I was in Anthrax way back then. They were, uh, you know, they were super poor. And uh, it was just a different time. But, um, yeah, we had these things in common. And, sure, uh, like when Slayer first came over, and we met those guys, and that was cool and everything. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't any kind of fierce competition, just like, you know, the healthy one. I know that when we heard Rain and Blood, that was good for nuclear assault because we were getting right in game over and we were like, oh, we got to kick this shit up a notch. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that's good. That's a healthy competition, you know? Have you caught any of those uh, Final Slayer shows? No, I did not go to the local one, even though Napalm was on it too, because that was the day after my wife left for Europe to go to the Brutal Assault Festival, and I just stayed home and was a bachelor and hung out with the cats because... Um, our old, our cats, our former two cats, both passed away in the spring. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was I'm a bad a cat spring. Lover too, by the way. Yeah. I've got a cat. And you're not going to be able to see this on the podcast, but I got that in memory of one of them. That's Ola, O-L-A, and I got that free in Brazil, so wow. that worked out. But we had just gotten newer cats, and I uh, just wanted to stay home and hang out and get to know the new crew. Cool. You know, and plus that venue, it's just expensive, shitty beer and a cop gauntlet every time you go out looking for Deweys and shit, and I wasn't interested. Now, a, uh, <clears throat> another question I ask a lot of people is the discussion of Paul Deano versus Bruce Dickinson. Who is your favorite Iron Maiden singer? Paul Deano. I, I just, I, I prefer... I prefer that kind of. It was she. He came from more of like a punk vibe, and Bruce, great vocalist, but he did a lot of layering on his vocals, and it was more kind of like an operatic thing, and very talented. But I just like the way Paul just had that kind of hoarse shout, and he hit a couple of high notes for you once in a while, but uh, mostly, yeah, it was just a more direct vibe. Plus, I just prefer Iron Maiden's older material. Yeah, I agree. So with that, that yeah. helps, you know. Yeah, Killers and the self-titled record. There's the songs were just like had this like raw kind of vibe to it. And... Well, it's funny because uh, I've been doing my voice tracks because I don't that Zeta thing doesn't work for me. Oh, you just do wave files. I do them and I just fucking we transfer them over. And uh, I'm playing Purgatory on my show on Friday, uh, and nice. I said I chose this song because it's got an old school Clive Bird D beat. That's one of their faster songs. I mean, you got the uh, harmonies that everybody's familiar with, but they're over that, uh, you know, 
I played Prowler too on one of my shows because I had that fast part in the middle. It's kind of like trying to tie shit in, like what it turned into after that. Yeah. As far as other bands being influenced by that, the punkier side. But um, you know, Bruce, great vocalist, but all that sunlight and steel and fucking three-part harmonies, it was just getting away from what appealed to me. You ever check out uh, Battlezone and Indiana's later stuff? No, I didn't. Yeah, well, as a completist, I did, and it's okay. Right. Yeah, he just got kind of got fat and sloppy about it, yeah. right? Yeah. His voice still held up, though, on the first their first record, but then it just got kind of cock-rocky, but, you know. Yeah, um, John Gallagher from Raven told me, like, 30 years ago plus, that uh, they played a show with Iron Maiden in London, and while he was on stage in a stage close, Pultiana was rifling through his wallet in his jeans backstage to get money so he could score smack. So there's a little fucking factoid tidbit. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for spending some time with us on this Sunday afternoon. No worries, man. Uh, thanks for chatting, and uh, hello to everybody. And uh, yeah, fucking metal. <laughs> All right, man, thanks a lot. All right, sure, dude. You've been listening to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. We'll be back next week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio via web, iOS, or Android for one of the best metal communities in the world, exclusive interviews and merch, and so much more. Man.